This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Amy Westervelt is the author of Forget Having It All, How America Messed Up Motherhood and How to Fix It. She's the founder of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network and the host of the podcast Drilled. And she's an award-winning print and audio journalist. She contributes often to The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, many other outlets. For her pioneering, fearless journalism on environmental and gender issues, Amy Westervelt has won an Edward R. Murrow Award, a Folio Award, and a Rachel Carson Award. As the head of uh, Critical Frequency, she's executive produced more than a dozen podcasts, including her own show, Drilled, which is the first ever true crime style podcast to examine the creation of climate denial. In this episode, Amy and I talk about the historical roots of the conditions that have made life difficult for mothers in America, particularly how the nuclear family evolved and the impact that social structure has on mothers and fathers today. Amy describes the central challenges we face in striving to change our culture and create a more just world for mothers. And we talk about what she has done in her own life to gain greater control over her family's destiny by adopting, at her husband's insistence, the Japanese management principle of Kaizen, or continual improvement. We also address how the dread realities of climate change are affecting the current generation of people at childbearing age and the choices they're making about whether or not it's morally sound to have children at all. Important, big questions that we take up in a somewhat lighthearted way. I hope you enjoy the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would much appreciate it if you would please rate and review it on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it as well. Now, get set to listen to and learn from a powerful, important voice in our national conversation about the realities of parenting today. It's Amy Westervelt. Amy Westervelt, it is an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. I am a huge fan of your your fearless, groundbreaking journalism on two issues that are near and dear to me and to our listeners, the the role of men and women in society uh, and climate. I don't know how much time we're going to get to spend on the latter issue uh, because I want to focus on, on forget having it all. Uh, you know, this is the sixth year we're on the on the air, and we've had many scholars, researchers, advocacy uh, people in many different sectors, private and public, not for profit, sharing their research and in, in the the literature in their own fields of study. But as a as a journalist, you've taken a, a distinctive point of view. So. Let's start with uh, I, I want to start with the bigger historical picture and then get into what we can be doing now, uh, both in our everyday lives as well as uh, people interested in trying to create social change. Mm -hmm. So how and when, in your view, did motherhood and the labor of women become devalued? You know, it's it's really interesting. I kind of, um, that was sort of the question that I started with when I started researching the book. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that it has kind of swung back and forth quite a bit over the years. And there's a, a very interesting correlation with, 
you know, as women gain more independence and more, you know, kind of take up more space in society as individuals, they, um, the expectations placed on motherhood tend to increase. It's sort of been used as like, um, I don't want to say a cudgel, but a cudgel <laughs> to, in what way? to women. Um, it's a sort of, you know, don't like don't get too far ahead of yourselves ladies like we still need mm-hmm. you to be doing all these you know household and and child care duties mm-hmm. um and i mean it's been it's just really interesting like you see it in um some of the the early american history stuff too where actually there was a period of time where um women were considered to um emotional and frail to be in charge of their children's moral upbringing. And so the, so men were actually quite involved in child rearing during those days because men were considered to be the only ones sort of capable of raising righteous children. Who Wait till your father gets home. And, I'm sorry? Wait till your father gets home. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that started really early on. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but then... You know, there's, there are parts, there are things that happen during the Industrial Revolution, too, where especially, you know, the division of labor that starts to happen there, um, where for the most part, you know, men go to work and a lot of women are staying home um, and sort of this unpaid labor at home is enabling quite a bit more workplace labor. And, and obviously this changes um, across class and race lines, too. So you have a, a totally, almost a totally different history for African-American women, for Latino women. Mm. Um, it really depends on, you know, where you're coming from and who sort of has power over what type of mother you get to be. Hmm. And and so there's an intersectional quality to this, to this vexing question of, uh, you know, yeah. why... Why is it that uh, women in in different parts of our society have mm-hmm. um, have been undervalued? Uh, and yeah, and and so it's you're you're arguing that it's partly in our puritanical roots, mm-hmm. and in the you know the, the the labor structures that 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 emerged in the industrial revolution. Uh, what yeah. else? It's in, also go I ahead. Mean, I, I think it's also. Um, it's also partly to do with the nuclear family structure um, that existed, you know, before people um, immigrated to America. But it became much more of a thing here because, in many cases, people were leaving behind the vast majority of their extended families. So this idea of every family as sort of an island, responsible for and to itself, um, became more entrenched here. I think there are there are kind of reverberations of this in um, the, the Calvinist Puritan traditions, too, this idea of, you know, every um, every person, and really in this case it's like every male head of a household being responsible for the salvation of their own family, which in some ways was a rejection of, you know, the sort of class hierarchy that churches had imposed in England. Um, a rejection? In, in, of that? Yeah, yeah. Could so, you explain that? I mean, that? a big part of, I, mean, I don't want to like, um, <laughs> I don't want to overly explain puritanical history, but okay. um, but like, but there was this, um, yeah, that was a big part of, of what drove quite a bit of the, the initial immigration to the U.S., at least the Puritans who were coming from England was, um, you know, there was this rigid uh, hierarchy in both the social structure and the class structure, but it was reinforced by the church structure as well, especially the Catholic Church, um, and to a lesser extent, but still there, the Protestant Church too. And so a lot of these folks were not just rejecting some of the aristocratic norms Mm -hmm. and trying to, you know, set out on their own, but also that kind of came part and parcel with carving out their own relationship with God and not feeling like they had to have this priest who was in charge or a bishop who was in charge of their salvation, but that they could be um, responsible for that themselves. And in many cases that um, men would be responsible for their families' salvation. And, you know, you hmm. see that in a lot of the um, personal responsibility narratives that we still hear today. Where 
So, so the, the, the emergence of the nuclear family as kind of the central organizing unit in, mm-hmm. in our culture, in our history, um, advantages men because of the primacy given to men as the, as the, uh, the holder of the values that the family was supposed to mm-hmm. enact and, and promulgate for the next generation? Right. Correct. And then there's a point where, um, actually, there's a really funny point in history where um, men start drinking too much. <laughs> when, when was that? <laughs> so, <laughs> that is in around like the late, well, let's see, I'm going to get my dates mixed up here. This is, is Approximately. I think it's late, it's like, it's, it's late 1700s to early mid 1800s. Um, so it's like, uh, they've started to get people have started to get a bit more money. There's alcohol to be had, and there's this concern that um, men are getting too concerned with um, wealth and money, and they're drinking too much, and that actually maybe we should hand over this moral um, role to women. And that's when you start to get like um, this idea of of motherhood sort of being promoted to women as like a really important thing. And, Mm. you know, this idea of like, no, no, you are equal because it's so important to have your, you know, moral fortitude raising up children. Um, And again, it's like, there's no, it's no coincidence that this is also the very early rumblings of the suffragette movement. Mm -hmm. So you start to hear women kind of asking for more rights and suddenly, oh, but you know, we need your um, steady hand at home. Hmm. So another another source of uh, oppression mm-hmm. was that movement. Yeah, it's really... Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's sort of... I don't want to say that motherhood isn't important. It is, you know, um, it's because I think that that is a thing, um, and I'm jumping way forward in history, but I think that's a thing that comes... In later in some of the second wave feminist thinking on this subject is is like that the the answer is to um, devalue all the things that have been equated with womanhood in the past, um, which I don't think is quite right either. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. so um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's I, an interesting and thorny subject all throughout. Very much so. Uh, I, I can vividly recall a conversation my wife had with uh, Betty Friedan at a uh, mm-hmm. conference that I was speaking at that uh, Al Gore, when he was vice president, had organized. This is 20 years ago. It was about families mm-hmm. and work. Uh, and uh, and Ms. Friedan was, um, was not happy. <laughs> my wife has a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. We went to graduate school together. She wasn't happy mm-hmm. that at that moment uh, in our family's history, she was full time at home. Um, but and, and, and sort of, you know, that's so interesting. Yeah. 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 She was like, no, yeah. you're not supposed to be doing <laughs> that. Uh, yeah. See, that's so interesting to me. And I don't I don't think that that is um, I don't think that that's helpful either. I honestly I feel like the um, to the extent that there's like a solution, I think there's you know, many things that need to happen. But one of the sort of overarching things to me is really that we need to shift our thinking on on caregiving in general yes. and value it in men and women. You know? Yes. Because um, because it's an important part of the economy, too. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So so the stigma associated with motherhood, what's, mm-hmm. what's the origins there? And I guess more urgently, where does that, where does that, situated where is that situated in today's political cultural environment so i started looking into this and it was really interesting that there was there was this period of time in um france and england and this is going way back like 1700s when um in france uh women started sending their kids away to wet nurses. And it started with just the very wealthy women. And then within like two years, it was almost everybody. And it didn't, it was like all classes, um, except for the very, very poor women who were the wet nurses. Uh, And so you had this explosion of like women hosting salons and um, being like public intellectuals and all of this stuff. And, um, England kind of followed suit shortly after, but they 
put a stop to it sooner than than the women in France did. But anyway, during that time, there emerged this idea that like um, motherhood was sort of um, unintellectual, mm. and that there was some kind of like something kind of like gross and corporeal about it. You know, like it's like. <laughs> It's so involved with your body gross. You know what I mean? Of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I ch- I've changed a yeah, lot of diapers so, in my life. But... Yeah, yeah. I know. So um, anyway, it's, it, it was a really, it was an interesting time. And there was, there was actually this, this very interesting book that a woman, um, a, a French feminist philosopher in France wrote um, maybe 10 or 20 years ago. Elizabeth Baden Badencore, I think is her name, and she no Badenter, B A D I N T E R. She wrote this book and um, in which she dug into all these historical records because they started to have a, a really large increase of um, infants dying, and they thought, oh, this is because of um, sending them away to the wet nurses, and then they thought, oh, you know, it's because you know, oh, you know, the mothers will stop sending babies to wet nurses because they're worried about, um, you know, the babies dying. And then anyway, there was all this research that was looking into this whole thing. And what Badenter found was that, um, that the women, for like many of the women were much more interested in having an independent and, and like free life mm-hmm. than ensuring the health of their infants. <laughs> So, so she kind of started to call into question the idea that there is some sort of like innate maternal instinct, mm. which um, some anthropologists have gone on to to study from there. But anyway, all of that um, was kind of the precursor to some of the stuff that we see today. Where I mean, even I think even now in a lot of feminist circles, it's still sort of. Um, not seen as feminist to be a mother. So, modern feminists, there's a there's a there's a uh, a stream of 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 that river that is uh, that looks askance at the the work of motherhood. Did I get that right, or yeah, not quite? I mean, this has been kind of a thing in in feminism since you know the. 50s, I would say, is um, this, and and actually, like in the early um, in the early stages, had quite a bit to do with with some of the divide between women of color and white women in the feminist movement. That there was this idea, you know, um, amongst a lot of, especially the more mainstream white feminists, that you know, motherhood was oppressive, and that you basically couldn't be an independent woman if you. Um, had kids. I mean, mm-hmm. if you were married or had kids, but particularly if you had kids, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and that it was an inherently patriarchal institution, and all of these kinds of things. And and actually, there's um, some interesting writing from a lot of um, a lot of women of color at the time who kind of said, you know, it's not my child who's oppressing me; it's white supremacy, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and um, and it's the class structure here, and it's. In, you know, endemic racism and all these other kinds of things. Um, so there was that. And then, um, and then also, of course, like a lot of these women had, you know, were not so far away from a history where their children were taken from them and the right to be a mother was not given to them. So mm-hmm. that's a very different history than, you know, women who have motherhood sort of pressed upon them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that comes into a lot of the discussions around, feminism and motherhood and reproductive rights and, and all of it. Uh, but yeah, today there's still a little bit, even, you know, even in, in groups that I've been in, um, there's a little bit of a sense of like uh, tolerating mothers and, and like discussions about motherhood, but not necessarily thinking that that is the work of feminism, which I think is a big problem because even if you don't have kids, ideas about motherhood impact you as a woman and as a man and kind of as a mm-hmm. person in society. Like <laughs> These ideas mm-hmm. are underpinning a lot of cultural notions and policies. And, and so kind of separating them off into like a separate group is just not, not helpful. I, yeah. I mean, uh, unless we want to just stop raising children, which right. <laughs> we right. probably don't want to do. You, now, you have yeah. children, correct? I do, I do. Yeah, I have two boys. Two boys, and how old are they? 
They are seven and three. Okay. Uh, I, I want to talk about what what that's like now for you and, and what you're, as mm-hmm. much as you're willing to talk about with respect to oh, how, yeah. how you see their roles evolving uh, and what your hopes are for them and what you're doing to try to help them to grow into the into the people you want them, you want to help them become. Uh, but before yeah. we get there, um, you know, uh, w- one of the many conversations we've had on the show recently with people doing interesting work in this in this area it was uh, with Caitlin Collins, who's a sociologist. Oh, uh, yeah, I love her. I know her, oh. and I love her work. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah, it's one of my yeah. favorite shows uh, that we did recently, Making Motherhood Work. So you, yeah. Just briefly, what what she did in her wonderful cross national study was to find that, well, culture matters, of course, uh, and what was what's unique about the American mother's um, mindset is the sense, and I think this gets back to what you were saying earlier about the the nuclear family, um, mm-hmm. that the responsibility for uh, for for creating a world in which you know mothers can do the work that they need to do uh it lies with the individual mother whereas in yeah. the other countries that she that she studied the attribution for you know for responsibility is to the society it's mm-hmm. you know you know you you have you the mother thinks you meaning the world around her and the world around her family right. has to enable my work uh as a mother right. Um, right. So what, what's your take on that? I think that's totally true. And I think that, um, well, there's a couple things. One, I think that that is also very tied into our sort of national history of individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you see that underpinning lots of different things in, in society. And it, it's sort of the key difference between um, the U.S. approach and various other countries' approach on a lot of social issues, that this idea that parental leave you know, being individual's responsibility and not society's responsibility. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that's true. And we um, we actually we have a show on about working mothers on our network, and the, the host from that. What's that called? Saying this thing, it's called the double shift, mm-hmm. um, and. The host of that is a, a journalist named Catherine Goldstein, and she's done a bunch of research on working mothers. She did a report on why um, women tend to leave newsrooms when they have kids. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she's been saying a lot is, and I think it's it kind of gets at this, is that um, you know the problem is not you; it's the system that you're working in. Mm-hmm. You know that like. Um, that your motherhood struggle is is mostly not because of some issue um, that you have or something that you're doing. It's because the system around you is broken. And I think Caitlin gets at that just so well in her in her book. Yes, yeah. and, and her phrase, uh, work-life justice, I think is really on point. And, and, uh, yeah, I love that. And spe- yeah. Right? Because it speaks to... I do, too. Yeah. Uh, it speaks mm-hmm. to... Uh, what what you know where where change needs to happen not just at the individual level but uh, as importantly if not more so structurally. Um, yeah. So, how would you characterize the the current state of motherhood in America? I think it's I I just I still think it's pretty miserable. I keep I was t- I was talking to someone about that the other day. I just I keep seeing this growing pile of what I call miserable, miserable American mom media. And it's like never ending, you know, and I feel like every time a new writer friend of mine has a kid, there's like a new batch of essays that come out, you know? (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm sure you see it cross your desk all the time. Um, Yeah, so I just, I don't know why it's been such a tough nut to crack, but I still don't think that we've cracked it. You know, uh, just to stay on this cross-national theme, the, the notion of women's work, um, like physicians, for example, um, in other parts of the world, that's how physicians are seen, for example. And here in the United States, the same role has a very different kind of, uh, you know, genderedness to it. Right. Why is that? In your view. Why do certain jobs take on certain like gender traits? Yeah, and, and how and that affects thing, the work of motherhood. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think um, what you see here is is 
generally care work is coded as female, so in in most cases, but then once it becomes high paid, it becomes male. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's um it's there's some interesting studies on that too, actually, where um, the Department of Labor kind of saw that there was this huge growth happening in, in you know, health workers and home health aides and all of that, and um, that it was mostly women doing those jobs, and they did all this research to see why men weren't taking those jobs. And the primary reason was that those jobs were feminized. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a really interesting one. I don't know. I have this theory that um, the closer one is to working with diapers, either at the beginning of life or the end of life, (laughs) the the less valued that work is. Yeah, that's interesting because I have a thing that I say a lot, which is that you can judge a society by how well it handles the start and end of life. And that's how I know Hmm. we're not doing ours that well. (laughs) No, no, it's messed up. You know, I've been puzzling over where do we begin, Amy? There's so much to be done. Uh, and I yeah. I want to start with that spreadsheet. You know what I'm talking about. Oh. <laughs> can we, yeah. can we, I want to start at the micro level and, and, and then get to the more macro issues, and then perhaps sure. we can finish on, on climate, which is a super macro issue. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I really enjoyed that piece you wrote uh, around Mother's Day earlier this year. Uh, mm-hmm. tell, tell our listeners about it for those who haven't seen it. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember what title they put on it, but it was basically like, um, I think it was like the joy of relentlessly auditing your life or something like that. <laughs> um, but basically, um, so my husband, uh, when we met, was living in Japan and working for Nissan. And so um, he was kind of a, even though he worked for Nissan, not Toyota, like everyone kind of does the Toyota way thing there. And so yes. he um, came uh, when... When we moved to the U.S., he um, started working for American companies that were interested in applying that kind of uh, process to their products. And um, Kaizen, continuous and improvement. Kaizen, exactly. Yeah, yes. Continuous improvement and um, and all of that. And so, you know, it, in very broad strokes, it basically like you pick a goal, you figure out the drivers towards that goal, and you collect data on all the things that sort of feed into it and then figure out ways to continuously advance toward that goal, basically. Um, And so for years, years, he had been like, oh, we need to do this in our lives. And I was like, get your spreadsheet out of my face. Get get your spreadsheet (laughs) out of my face? You said that? (laughs) I did. Amy. I I was like, well, because I was like, I'm a creative. I can't have a spreadsheet in my life. Yes, that seems counter-normative to the creative life. I know, I know. So anyway, eventually I relented and we spent a year collecting data on basically how we were spending time and money and how it correlated to how happy we were with our lives. And one of the many things that came out of it um, was just that we were able to, in a very kind of emotionless way, look at uh, the division of labor in our house mm-hmm. and make it more fair. You had the data. Um, and there was, yeah, we had the data. There was no like, I feel like I'm doing right. more of this. You, you know? spent X hours, I like, spent Y. That doesn't seem right. Exactly, exactly. And nine mm-hmm. times out of ten, we would look at it. So we we looked at it every day. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd input our scores and we would look at it and talk about it. And he, nine times out of ten, you know, um, he would notice like, oh you are spending way more time than me on, you know, whatever household chore. Like, why don't Mm -hmm. I take on, you know, this and maybe that and then whatever. Or I would notice like, oh, your commute is insane. So like his his commute at the time was two hours each way. Whoa. (laughs) It was crazy. Mm. So we figured out a way that he could take the train and ride his bike so that it was still about the same amount of time, but he could like work on the train and get exercise on his bike. And it was much more pleasant than sitting in traffic for two hours each way. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, little things like that. And then eventually we um, sold our house and he quit his job and we moved. Well, hang on, Amy. Hang on. (laughs) As as you wrote about that, 
as I, I understood yeah. from that article, it was, you know, the, one day as a result of, you know, your sort of mindful processing of your, mm-hmm. your you know, your life's, you know, resource allocations here, that mm-hmm. you, you came to the conclusion that you were, uh, that you had to make some big changes, that, yeah. including where you were living. Is, do I have that yeah, right? we did. We, yeah, that's exactly right. We kind of realized that we had run, to, like, we, we'd hit the limit of the sort of incremental changes that we could make, mm-hmm. and... The only way to really increase our happiness scores, which was the goal, <laughs> right, right, was to move because we were living in the Bay Area and it was super expensive. Get it? His job required this big commute, mm-hmm. and we just realized, like, you know, we have to spend so many hours working, and that we're not even enjoying the place that we live anyway. And at that point, too, we'd had our first child and just didn't want to be working 60 hours a week, the both of us. So we did, again, more data collecting. We found, we did a lot of research around where we could move that would um, kind of enable us to both still work with some of the people that we'd been working with and mm-hmm. have access to an airport and all that kind of stuff and, um, and be outside a lot. So, yeah, we ended up near Lake Tahoe. Hmm. And... We cut our living expenses by fifty percent. Wow! So it was great. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. so so uh, that's a wonderful story about uh, you know what it, what a family a person can can do to take a greater sense of you know agency or control uh, to mm-hmm. to lead the life that that they want to live, which is what the the work that I've been doing for a long, long time is primarily focused on as much as we do work yeah. on advocacy for change in policy. There's there's a lot to be gained from helping people to see what they can do to to make changes within within the scope of what's possible for for them. For so them. right. So yeah. how has that shifted? Your your husband's relentless, um, you know, interest <laughs> in 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 having this sort of approach. How is that? That you ultimately yielded to. I don't know why yet. You haven't said why you ultimately <laughs> relented. Maybe we don't have to get to that. But it, it was kind of motherhood, actually. Like we uh, had, a, we had bought a house and we'd had our first kid, and we mm-hmm. hadn't really done much planning or talking around how that would actually work. Especially once I went back to work, and um, and so I was, yeah, I was. I would think I was like doing an interview while folding laundry and rocking a cradle with my foot. And I was like, wow. okay, maybe, maybe we should do something here. That's that's the not that's the not having at all uh, image, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So that mm-hmm. that you finally relented, and and so how has that experience of uh, you know this um, reflecting on what matters, really looking at what the reality of your lives is, and then negotiating a you know a different world uh, for mm-hmm. yourselves together individually. How has that shifted your thinking about what needs to be done in in our world, in our society, to help uh, mothers and fathers uh, to to live the lives that they want to live as parents and as productive members of our society? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's really made me feel like just I would like for more people um, – to not only you know take that control if they have it, but also just have the leeway of structuring their lives in a way that works for them. I just I mm-hmm. feel like so many we were very very lucky that you know I was freelance. He had a job that paid well enough. We had managed to buy a house so we could cash out and have some mm-hmm. amount of money to start this like new life that we were starting. A lot of people don't have any of those of things. Of course not. And, Um, And even with all that stuff, it was still super hard for us. You know, it wasn't like we were on vacation for years or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I just I think it's it's made me um, it's really made me realize that. So I, I feel like for us, we kind of did pretty much like the to the extreme end. If you don't have you know, generational wealth or a trust fund or whatever. Um, I feel like we did about as much as any family could do to really like take the bull by the horns and and create the life that we wanted. And we still came up against so many institutional 
blocks to balancing parenthood and work and life and all of that kind of stuff. And so that um, it's, it's interesting, actually, like I've talked to Caitlin about this because mm. for a long time I was like really kind of team culture change, you know, and, and, um, and she's very big on policy change. Yes, yes. <laughs> We'd be like, no culture, no policy. Mm-hmm. But I actually, I do feel like, um, you know, it's great to make, um, the changes that you can in your individual life, but absent systemic change is just like, there's a limit to it. There is a limit. There's, there's only so much you can do to end uh, racism in your own life, for example, or sexism. Right, or, exactly. Um, yeah. But but there yeah. is room for that. Most what I've discovered in in my work helping people to become more aware of what really matters to them and the people who matter most mm-hmm. to them, and and to be able to take uh, small steps towards uh, you know enacting their values and and pursuing the vision of the world they're trying to create that they have more control and agency than they than they might have thought uh, you know until they as you say took the bull by the horns and so there's there's a lot to be gained from doing that but there are of course limits so what 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 are the primary ideas that 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 you developed in in how to fix it for um for the for the problem of uh, American motherhood these days that you want our listeners to know well I think I do think that one of the um, the kind of key things is um, is that and this is going to sound it's going to sound so minor but it, I think it's actually kind of a big deal is that you know even in our media we don't see a lot of like other examples of mm-hmm. how families work you know it's like it kind of it's still sort of like stay at home mom or working mom and there are totally there are these like tropes that still apply to both of those and um you know sometimes we'll see an extended family but not that often. And we certainly don't see the, the sort of um, what a lot of, of African-American feminist scholars will call other mothering or community mothering mm-hmm. that I think is really, really, um, it's just, it's kind of critical right now. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of, if you're in a, a situation where, you know, everybody is, is kind of struggling to have enough time and money and energy and all those things, um, you, you kind of have to be more community-minded. And that gets, again, back to this whole individual versus community thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think, in general, we need to start thinking from more of a community perspective. And, you know, you're starting to see some really interesting co-housing um, mm-hmm. uh, things happening. Like, in, in our town, there's one. And and it's it's fascinating. Like the everyone signs up to do a certain amount of sort of like neighborhood caregiving. So that might mean like taking an elderly person to their doctor's appointments or babysitting for a family's kids or, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's really it's interesting. Or I know um, I've seen some stuff around people finding co-parents online where there's no romantic relationship. It's just like two families kind of like doing it together. Um, It's really interesting. So I do feel like some of those um, non-systemic, like cultural experiments will be helpful because I think people do sort of need to see different ways of doing it in order to to think that that's possible. And then at the policy level, I actually, I would really like to see all of the um, Family Care Act type stuff, all of the proposals for parental leave and all of that. I, like, there's one key change that I think they should all have, and I, I think it would get a lot more buy-in if they did it, is uh, to extend it to elder care. Mm-hmm. Um, because, A, a lot of politicians are very old. B, no. <laughs> So they want to be cared uh, for. But, yeah, well, it's true. I mean, a lot of poli- people making policy decisions are a lot closer to worrying about that end of the care spectrum than mm-hmm. young kids, you know. Yeah, um, so except they, think, many of them know, have grandchildren, so that changes the game, too. Many of too. them have grandchildren. That's true. That's true. But I do – I feel like there's been a real um, – a real tendency to kind of separate those things. And in reality, like a lot of the people I know, I'm in my early 40s, a lot of people in my Mm -hmm. age group and, you know, down to early 30s 
are um, are having exactly the same issues with having to care for elderly parents as mothers talk about with having to take care of for young kids. I yeah. know people that have gone into debt because they've had to take mm-hmm. time off to take care of parents. It's you know, it's a care crisis in general, and I think that spreading it out would um, would be a good thing. The other thing that I was was going to say is um, that I do think a lot of this stuff gets reinforced. Um, in the school system mm-hmm. and the school system in the U S the public school system anyway, is still very much set up to serve a family that is no longer the norm. Mm-hmm. So like it, it totally assumes that one parent is not working and that is just, that's not the case in the majority um, more than half of American right. homes, that's you know? Right. So, um, so that needs to change, but then you get into school funding and all of that kind of stuff too. So I think like we need to think about um, restructuring schools and funding schools with some of the um, the broader family implications in mind too. And the other thing that yes. I talked about. Let me just uh, yeah. insert here. Oh, yeah. my, my youngest child, she's 25, almost 26, is a school teacher. She's a University of Pennsylvania graduate. And she teaches special ed in a third grade in a Title I school outside of Boston. And, uh, you know, the approach in that school uh, is one that is all about investing in the whole person of the child. And she spends time, like, on the weekends and, uh, you know, in the community where her kids are and is very much involved in supporting the families as well as much as she can. I mean, it's it's uh, it's 12-hour days. It's grueling. And... Uh, and the pay is ridiculous. So uh, yeah, you are you thing. are speaking to yeah. the choir right here, uh, and I just wanted to <laughs> underscore that point that uh, anyone who's listening who has anything to do with education policy, and I think we're going to see this in the in the presidential campaign that you know funding for education, especially yeah. to support the teachers who are providing these kinds of services, is just essential. Uh, but yeah. but please continue. No, I mean, it's true. I think, obviously, you're seeing so many uh, teacher strikes everywhere for this exact same reason. Mm-hmm. I just, that's another one of those um, care jobs that has been historically undervalued, and it's... Tragically. Ridiculous. It is. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's just, it's a shame, uh, and it doesn't have to be that way. You look at our, you know, other nations that are, you know, economically developed, they're, you know, they, they make us look like primitives. Um, Amy, I, I, I know that you have some ideas about climate change as well. This is a big part of what you do in your work, and it's, it's, it's obviously yeah. the issue that, that you know, unites us, us all. How, what, is, what does climate change have to do with motherhood? You know, it's so interesting. Um, I have had I've the two things that I've kind of written about the most have been climate change and motherhood, and usually I keep them totally separately. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I keep them totally separate, and a yes. lot of my editors will will like. I mean, my climate change editors will like you know kind of look askance at the motherhood stuff, like it's like silly, you know, um, which is something that I find really interesting and frustrating because I think that you know all of the the uh, parenthood stuff touches on, you know, economy, labor, health, gender. Like, there's a lot of serious topics in there. You of course. Know? But increasingly, I feel like the two are constantly intersecting for me because a big part of what drives me to work on climate is the fact that I'm a mother. You know, I, I can't mm-hmm. help but look at my kids and think, you know, um, you know, my oldest is seven and he's starting to ask me about college already. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, and as I'm trying, I try to just sort of give him, you know, basic answers, but in my head, I'm like, will college even be a thing when you're that age? Maybe not. Will you, you know, I'm like, you know, in my head, I'm like, forget college kid. You're going to be in resource wars, you know? Yes, <laughs> I do know. It's a really depressing thought, but, um, but it it is kind of a, a constant driver for me that um, that I feel like I have to do absolutely everything I can to address this issue um, because yeah, not just for my own kids, but for for all kids. The future of humanity. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
So how does this how does this intersect day to day for in in the in the the consciousness of mothers that that you write about and that you are uh, that you're trying to to help with your with your journalism? It's really interesting. So I, maybe five or six years ago, I did a story for the Guardian about population and like reproductive choice and climate change. And this is like a thing that I'm sure you've seen. It comes up every like five to ten years. It's like you know, climate, oh, mm-hmm. is, is it irresponsible to have children? Yep. How does that come into your child rearing and, you know, child having decisions? All of that. And um, my sense was, well, you know, these decisions are made from a variety of really personal factors, and I don't know that you could get at any single one answer. And, and that kind of tended to be true in the um, the survey that we did five years ago. So we surveyed 200 people. Some of them said that climate was a concern, but it wasn't the top concern for anyone. And it kind of took the form of, you know, I feel like it would be irresponsible for me to contribute to climate change mm-hmm. by having mm-hmm. um, Now, I think that you hear a lot more people saying, I actually wanted to have kids, but I'm not going to because I'm worried about how climate change will affect them. And that is a really key shift. And I don't think that like you're, we're hearing enough about it, but it's something that I've heard a lot of people say. Yes. Um, so, you know, when politicians are wringing their hands about birth rate, um, in addition to like making life a little better for parents, <laughs> they might want to think about climate change. Yeah, absolutely. I'm hearing that in the classroom with clients, you know, where I, I speak about the subject. I, I did a book uh, a few years ago called Baby Bust, which which describes mm, the changes in our society based on a longitudinal study of students yes. comparing the class of 92 to the class of 2012, finding how, uh, you know, the, the interest in having uh, children has dropped by uh, 50%, I mean, from 80% That's to 40%. Yeah. And, wow. And, and why that is and why it's different for men and women. And, and we talk about that in class and then we talk about climate change and many people then say, well, wait a minute, is it irresponsible? So that, that's an important issue yeah. uh, that, that I'm glad we got to. Uh, now, what can people do to become more thoughtful about how to approach that question? Uh, where can people go to find out more on that particular subject before we wrap up? Hmm. They could go to my website. I have some stuff on there. Okay, let's <laughs> let's talk about. Yeah. So please spell that. <laughs> oh, Westerveld is uh, so it's A M Y and then W E S T E R V E L T dot com, and you can also calculate your unpaid labor on my unpaid labor calculator. <laughs> oh, good. And what is that? What does that yield? <laughs> Oh, it's just an interesting way to sort of like put a number on a lot of the um, the sort of tasks that aren't um, officially accounted for, but definitely like drive the economy forward. Yeah. Uh, one of the presidential candidates wants to compensate people for that very unpaid labor. Um, yeah. So that, that'll probably be a, an issue that, that continues to get public attention in, in the year ahead. What else can mm-hmm. people find on your website that they uh, might want to discover more about um there well there's there are links to various places that you can buy the book um there's Mm -hmm. the climate change podcast Mm -hmm. and i do have some links to articles that i've written including this um this guardian survey which i now i kind of want to do like a five years later update to because i think it's changed so much all right. Well, I hope that you'll come back and talk to us about that when you uh, when you uh, gather that data and make sense of it. Amy Westervelt, yeah. uh, author of Forget Having It All, How America Messed Up Motherhood and How to Fix It. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, uh, your insights about these critical issues uh, and, and for um, bringing them to our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. I hope you found my conversation with Amy Westervelt to be as thought-provoking as I did. So much to follow up on here. I want to pick up on one of the discussion threads, and that was uh, about how she changed the dynamics of decision-making in her family. So let me present a challenge to you, an invitation. 
why not do a bit of Kaizen, continual improvement, in your family by tracking, perhaps over the next week or so, or even just over the next few days, the allocation of time you and the other members of your family, particularly or maybe only your spouse or partner if you have one, the amount of time that you spend on different major activities, especially chores. But it could include other obligations, like child care, if you have kids in your midst. And then talk about the patterns that you observe from this data that you have collected. What do you discover and what insights emerge about adjustments that you might make to better align what you do with what you really care about, both individually and collectively? I love hearing from listeners like you, so please write to me to tell me what you learned from taking up this challenge, this invitation, if indeed you do. You can get in touch with me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.